Welcome, listener. Join us for this Clear Path to Success professional development podcast. Welcome to the Clear Path to Success podcast for business development. This is a podcast where we intend to inform and educate you and help you navigate the challenges of your practice by hearing about the successes and challenges of your peers. I am Robert Yago, your host, a practitioner and a business owner. Today, I'm talking to you with Dr. Ayla Wolf. I'm very excited about this conversation. We had a, a quite extensive pre-chat. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about her bio, and then we'll get right to it. So Dr. A- Dr. Ayla Wolf is a doctor of acupuncture and oriental medicine, specializing in neurological disorders, chronic pain, and concussion recovery. She is a faculty member of the Carrick Institute of Clinical Neuroscience and Rehabilitation. She teaches courses for healthcare practitioners across the country on neurological exam techniques, functional neurology, dysautonomia, and concussion recovery, and has been a featured speaker in veterans groups on the topic of brain health. While in Dallas, Texas, Dr. Ayla Wolf was the lead researcher on a randomized clinical trial on the effects of acupuncture on cerebral blood flow velocity in mixed martial arts fighters following concussion. She was the team acupuncturist for the professional MMA fighters at Fortis MMA in Dallas, Texas, working with the UFC and legacy fighters. She is now back in private practice, providing a unique combination of acupuncture, Chinese medicine, and functional neurology for the treatment of neurological disorders. Dr. Wolf, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we spoke in depth. I wish our listeners could have enjoyed our conversation. I most certainly did. <laughs> so <laughs> what we've, what would I like to do today is talk to you about your practice and your journey to being a specialist. So most of the time as Chinese practitioners, we start out as being generalists, general practitioners. Um, for myself, I, I was included in that. I just love the medicine. I loved every single aspect. I was doing CEUs while I was in acupuncture school just to learn about the different aspects and different areas of study. And it was truly fascinating in all respects. Um, Secretly, I admired people that knew exactly what they wanted to do as far as their private practice once they graduated. And uh, I always wanted and waited until I grew up to specialize. So I am very, um, very, I very much admire uh, where you're at today. So my first question to you today is, was there a plan? Was there a plan all along when you were in acupuncture school to, to start and to begin where you are today? Um, could you tell us a little bit more uh, about your journey there? Yes. When I was in acupuncture school, I was just so excited to graduate and open a clinic. I never had any intention of specializing in neurology. And I would say pretty closely after I graduated, which was back in 2006, I got into more of the functional medicine world and the uh, world of fertility. And I found that specialize. I found that specializing in fertility was a a great way of getting busy because these women would just keep coming until they got pregnant. <laughs> it's a great business model. Um, 
And it's hysterical because for the seven years that I specialized in fertility, I didn't really see it as a a business model in that regard of like, oh, you know, these people are going to come in until they get pregnant. But then when I moved, I'm sorry, I am probably jumping ahead a little bit, but when I moved to Texas and started specializing in more of the sports medicine and concussion world, I started to realize that patients would come in with elbow pain and after two or three visits, the elbow pain would be gone and they would go away. And it was the sense of, oh man, like I need to work harder to get new mm-hmm. patients in the door because these people are only here for, you know, a couple of visits and then their pain goes away and they're all good and they're back, they're back in the game, so to speak, right. um, which was right. a whole different business model from the, the fertility deal. So it's funny how you just start to realize these dynamics you know, you're just kind of in it to begin. And then you realize, oh, this is like a whole different ball game. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. And, and when you opened up your practice doors, what did it take a long time for you to be successful or to, to start booking patients on your schedule? Uh, how long did it take? I, um, I, I would say that when I was 25 years old, and no bank would give me a loan to start a business. And all I had was a $10,000 loan from the bank of dad. Uh, mm-hmm. I had to make things happen as quickly as possible. Otherwise, I was going to run out of money real soon. And most people that start a business could also look, you know, would laugh at $10,000. Like, you're going to start a business with 10000 bucks. Like, good, good luck, right? Um, so I immediately filled out every single application to get on every single insurance panel so that I could build insurance. Um, And at the time in Oregon, there were a lot of people who just had a $10 copay or $15 copay. So all of a sudden that made things very affordable to a whole lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I joined probably five different networking groups. I remember at one point in time I counted and I was on five, I was, I was in five different networking groups of some kind. And so I became the master networker and within six months I had a full schedule. I was, I was cranking away. And um, again, it's like, I just kind of took that all in stride. Like I didn't think there was anything strange about that. I was like, Oh, this is just, this is just how this works. Right? Like you open up your doors and you talk to a bunch of people and, and all of a sudden you're full. Um, but I think now, that maybe I, if I could I, stop you right there, it, yeah. you know, was when you were going to those networking groups, because a lot of people are trying those out and they're looking for their message. Do you remember way back when, what was your message uh, as far as how did you talk about Chinese medicine? Were you speaking specifically about women's issues or was it something different? That's a good question. And that was a long time ago. So I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember the language I used or, or what made me a good networker. (laughs) Um, I wish I had a better answer for you for back then. I can tell you how I operate now, which is totally different. Um, But I, I do know that a lot of these networking groups, you're not gonna get something out of them right out of the gate. And I think that a lot of people that try networking groups, maybe get disappointed. They say, oh, I've been going to this meeting every single week for three months and nothing's happening. And the reality is usually if you put in six months 
that's when people start to trust you and, and, you know, think of your name when they're talking to someone who says, Oh, I just hurt my shoulder or whatever uh, that comes up in, in day-to-day conversations. Um, so, you know, for any, you know, if people uh, have had frustrations with those types of groups, I really do think that you have to give it at least a six month time commitment to really see those relationships develop. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about community right now. And, and so many of us are feeling like we've lost our, our communities because we're in the social isolation or even before all of this happened. I think a lot of people still felt like they didn't really have a community. And I will say that in hindsight, in looking back at doing all of the networking, I had my community. I, 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 if I needed a plumber, I knew a plumber. If I needed a real estate agent, I had a real estate agent. If I needed an accountant, I knew an accountant. If I needed someone to print me business cards, I knew a printer. You know, there was um, just a sense of feeling like if I needed something, I had the resources and the connections to, to go out and, and get the help that I needed or the service I needed or make the contact I needed. And that's really what networking is all about at the end of the day is being part of a community. Um, So I think that sometimes networking groups do get a bad rap or people feel like it's just focused on, you know, passing money back and forth or, or referrals back and forth. And certainly there are some types that focus more on that. Um, but there are other ones that I think much, are much more focused on building right. community and feeling connected to community. And I think that that's, you know, a larger benefit too of, of do, doing those types of groups. Right, right. I agree. And I, I think there's having those, those resources and being able to find somebody that can solve a problem is so important and that's it's having that community there to leverage that right so that's that's um so important now it, for all intents and purposes it sounded like your your practice was up and going really quickly um tell us tell us how successful it was and and obviously throughout the time of our practice success always changes but for all uh, major accounts, you were doing really well right from the get-go. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I can say that in hindsight, I realized I, I had it so much better than I, like, I think I took a lot of things for granted. And that's not to say that I didn't work hard because I'm one of the hardest working people I know. I'm I'm like the meanest boss ever <laughs> to myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> so mm-hmm. obviously I, I work really hard, um, but things flowed for me for those first seven years in terms of a steady growth. And I think partly because I didn't I didn't overextend myself at any point along the way. It was like every decision I made was a smart decision in terms of, I started out by just renting one room in somebody else's clinic. And then when a massage therapist left, I then rented a second room. And so suddenly I had two rooms. And then um, because I had two rooms and I wasn't in those two rooms, you know, 70 hours a week, I realized I could bring somebody in part-time to work for me. So I brought somebody else in as an independent contractor who worked just a couple days a week in one of my rooms when I wasn't needing it. And then as she got busier, I realized, oh, I can now get my own office. And so then 
I moved into my own office that had four treatment rooms and then I could bring in a massage therapist and rent out a room to that person. And so my growth was very gradual and very slow and I never overextended. I never kind of bit off more than I could chew. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so I was never in a bad place where I was like, Ooh, if this doesn't, if this doesn't work out perfectly immediately, like I'm going to run out of money or I'm not going to be able to pay my bills or pay my employees or, you know, everything I did was very slow and very gradual. Uh, But by the time, you know, seven years had gone by, I had my own clinic. I had purchased the building my clinic was in. So now I was also my own landlord and I opened up a second clinic 30 minutes away and had about uh, with me and three other acupuncturists there were four acupuncturists three massage therapists that were just renting space from me and then a front desk staff that kind of handled all the the medical billing and front desk day-to-day stuff Uh, Mm -hmm. and so it was a pretty big operation uh you know seven years in sure and so at that point you were still fertility, general specialty as well. So when did things start to change for you? When did you start to change your and be more focused on uh, neurology, for example? Well, one of the things I, I, I would like to interject is that I found out that having a bunch of acupuncturists in one space, um, there were certain things that, that, that worked really well about that, um, that maybe even surprised me a little bit. And what I mean by that is because I specialized in fertility, all of the patient patients with fertility would come to me. Um, because one of my employees was just a very general practitioner, it was like everybody that wasn't fertility would go to her. And then one of the other people was specific sports acupuncture and so all of the sports acupuncture or sports injury people would go to her. And so there, there was a very clear delineation between like, who's a good fit for the person that's calling on the phone saying, Hey, I, I want to make an appointment. Right. And there was never a sense of, um, there was never a sense of fighting over patients. And there was never a sense of, you know, I'm busier than this person is. Cause we were, we were all busy. We were all busy. And so there was no sense of, um, competition. And I've now worked in many different office type settings with other acupuncturists. And to this day, I still have never had a sense of being in competition with the same people in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say there aren't, weren't other like, you know, petty bickering or other things that come up that like are totally independent. Um, but I can say that I think some acupuncturists maybe worry about that and, mm-hmm. and worry that, Oh, if I'm in an office with another acupuncturist, are we going to be, you know, in competition with each other or, or whatnot? And I would just say in my experience, having been in now a lot of different situations with a lot of different practitioners, I've just never, never had that. Right. Right. And I, I think I that's, um, it helps when you're clear on what you do as well. Right. And there's a lot of people out there. And I have a strong feeling that we're not servicing all of those people in our area. So I think our message needs to to be clear and loud and how we can help people. Um, I think that's so, so important. So 
you know, I think scarcity is, is not an issue at this point, either for us, you know, chiropractors or any holistic type of health practitioner. I think just people need to know what we can do for them. Right. Yeah. I, I think too, maybe, you know, if there's a, a person who's a little hesitant about trying acupuncture or hesitant about going somewhere that they don't know, a person's probably going to feel more comfortable going to a clinic that's got four practitioners under one roof than kind of taking their chance on some random solo person who's working out of their basement. You know, (laughs) I don't know. Like I I think that even from the perspective of the consumer um, having an office where you've got four acupuncturists under one roof, it's almost like it gives it a certain sense of like, Oh, that's good. That must be a safe place. Like (laughs) there's, you know, right. a lot of a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people going going in and out, and a lot of practitioners clearly working together, and um, it has more of this kind of clinic model that maybe people are comfortable with. I don't know, but right, right. And, and so, you know, I've 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 been in every single situation. I've been I've been in the solo practice, and I've been in the big practice, and I've been in the medium sized practice, and I've done it all. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. I mean, you know what you like after a while and you know what works for you because you've, you've tried them out, right? So that's, that's important to know what kind of setting that you like to do your craft, right? So with that, having your, your building, your second location, and um, you were busy with management issues and staff and such, um, you moved, and you moved out of Oregon and uh, you went elsewhere. Um, what what happened at that point? Yeah. Um, that's a, to make a, what could potentially be a very long story short. <laughs> um, mm. I had had multiple concussions that, uh, you know, really led me to a place of needing to figure out how can I heal my own brain and that's what led me down the rabbit hole of then asking the question of like, what can my own system of medicine do? Um, You know, can acupuncture help with brain injuries? Can Chinese herbs help with brain injuries? Can herbs and supplements help with brain injuries? And once I started exploring that, it opened up like a never ending rabbit hole that I have been going down ever since basically. And I would say that I, started that journey being very ignorant, very ignorant to what a concussion was, what a concussion looked like, um, just the the huge amount of information that a person actually needs to know in order to be able to work with patients with concussions. And so my, uh, at least I could say, oh, wow, I'm completely ignorant and I know nothing <laughs> because that's what led me to just constantly learn and say, okay, well, I need to learn this. And now I need to learn that. And now I need to learn that. And I mean, it, it was a journey of obsession. I mean, I was completely obsessed with needing to know everything that I could. And I started that journey by saying, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get my doctorate degree and looking at all of the schools out there that were offering doctorate degrees and feeling like the one that was the best fit was the school in Texas because their specialty was in pain. And I felt like I could go there and focus on kind of neurological disorders and concussions and that that would tie in um, kind of with their program. 
And sure enough, um, I was able to do that. And I was able to, you know, take whatever assignment was given to me and come at it from the lens of um, let's talk about concussions and how does that fit into this, this assignment basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's on what led me on that side journey. of things. When you, so you had your life and your practice established in Oregon and then you said, guess what? I'm obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> I need to leave and, and this is going to cost me. Was this, you know, from a human perspective, was this like, oh my God, this is scary. I am going in a direction that I never thought I was going to go in and it's bringing me out of state into the unknown. Was that, were you gung-ho for it? Were you nervous, scared? You know, what were your thoughts at that point of making a major shift in your life? The, I remember the last six months of being in Oregon were extremely stressful because I was trying to sell a business. I was trying to sell a commercial building. I was trying to sell my house and I was trying to do it all at the same time. I mean, that's like, you can't orchestrate that, right? I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. it's like trying to do all of that and orchestrate it so that you can then get to another state before a school program starts. I mean, it was insanity, total insanity. Uh, and I managed to do it. I ended up selling my house to one of the acupuncturists that had worked in my office and that worked out really well. But so she and I were actually living in the house together at the same time up until the point where she bought it. And then I was like, you know what, like I'm, I'm going to peace out and like go just like stay at a friend's house for the last two months. And I'm actually here <laughs> since this is now your house. And so I just want you to have it, you know, like, and not me right. not be here. So, I mean, I mean, talk about just all kinds of weird scenarios to like make it happen. <laughs> it work. Um, and then, yeah, I sold, I sold my practice. There was another acupuncturist in town who was expand. She, she had like a couple of different clinics and like satellite clinics And she wanted to open a brand new clinic in a bigger space and and hire more acupuncturists. And so she ended up buying my practice and having all three of the acupuncturists that worked with me move over into her office. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of a massive kind of shift for all of those people. And it worked out for one of them. It didn't work out in the long run for two of them. and I, rem- I remember having like a lot of guilt and like, I wanted to take care of these people. I didn't want to just abandon people and be like, all right, mm-hmm. I've decided to uproot my entire life. So you all just go figure it out, <laughs> you know? And so I was, I felt good about the fact that these people all still had jobs and they could bring all of their patients and just essentially be in a different location. Um, so at least I did my part, right? I did my part in like helping everybody transition into a different space with a different, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of program. Um, so I at least like felt good about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So chapter two, (laughs) chapter two, two, the Texas story. (laughs) So you arrive in Texas and you enter the, the program and as far as looking at what you wanted to study, where you wanted to go, where the next steps were, did you have a clear vision at that point or was it 
a, I'm going to go through the process. I'm going to go through that education and then figure things out from, from there. Or was there something else? I have realized as I get to know myself that I don't understand how much work stuff really is. I just agree to do it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so um, I decided that while I was like the second I got to Texas, I immediately opened up my practice and I was going to be running a clinic, treating patients and commuting from Dallas to Austin to go to school and basically do my doctorate program and try to do this big research project that was kind of massive that I probably should have tried to not do. (laughs) I should have thought of something much easier to do. Um, I took off, like I took off way more than I could chew, which meant that I really disciplined myself to basically be working like seven days a week and working really long hours of, you know, going to work, treating patients, coming home, studying, um, and then every six to seven weeks having to shut my clinic down so that I could drive to Austin and then do classes. And classes were from eight in the morning to 8 p.m., you know, seven days a week. I mean, it was such an intense schedule. Right. It was insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I answered your question, though. <laughs> so, no, it's all part of it. And when did you start, when did the pieces of the puzzle start to come together where we're like, hmm, there's something here that, that we're missing, that I'm missing as far as um, our profession and our medicine. That yeah, I there's started... something, there's some gems here that, that we really need to mm-hmm. uncover. And it's starting to, like the big picture is starting to come to you. I was doing assignments. Uh, so we, we were supposed to create a research um, so we, you know, we were supposed to have a research project, like a dissertation for the doctorate program. And right out of the gate, I was wanting to understand how acupuncture changed the blood flow to, to the brain uh, after concussions. And so as I started to do the background research on concussions, I was having to read these research papers that were so heavy on neuroanatomy and brain imaging techniques. And it was just a whole world that I didn't have any background in. And Mm -hmm. I was trying to teach myself by reading these papers. And I remember living in Dallas and driving to Baylor University and going into their medical library. And I was spending hours and hours at the Baylor University Library because I could have, I had full access to like all these journal articles. Whereas if you just tried to pull it up from your computer from home, you wouldn't have full access. You'd only have like abstracts. And so I was literally like living in this (laughs) other university's library, um, Mm -hmm. pulling all these research papers and then trying to read them and trying to understand and teach myself neuroscience. And it was really hard. And so I decided that I should maybe just enroll in some actual neuroscience courses. So on top of being in a doctorate program, I then went and found the University of Texas in Dallas and signed up for a master's program uh, our master's level neuroscience course. And so I, I took that course and, you know, it was, it was 
hard because sometimes that court, those courses would overlap with when I had to be in Austin and this guy who was my teacher for this neuroscience course, like all of these students in the course are master's level students that are going through a specific neuroscience program. And then there's this one random acupuncturist who's just (laughs) showing up and saying like, Oh, I'm sorry. Can I take the test early? Cause I have to drive down to Austin because I'm doing this other program. (laughs) And um, so he didn't really have a whole lot of like sympathy or empathy for me and just thought I was this weirdo and didn't Mm -hmm. understand why I was in the class and, and it just wasn't a good fit. And, um, I remember feeling like he thought that I was going to fail or that I was like not going to do well. And so like, just to spite him, I was like, I am acing this class <laughs> purely out of spite. <laughs> well, done. well done. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that was when I then discovered the Carrick Institute, which was a much better fit because uh, the Carrick Institute was a, it kind of started out, I would say, as a postdoctoral co- uh, program in clinical neuroscience. So the majority of people that were going through their courses were uh, doctors of chiropractic who were already either either in chiropractic school or in pra- graduated and in practice and wanting to specialize in, in neurological disorders. And so their program was 100% clinically oriented. You know, it was like oriented to the clinician and to patients and disorders that you see and how do you examine this patient functionally? How do you do bedside neurological exams? How do you interpret those exams? How do you treat these fine, you know, these people with these findings? It was a whole different, you know, it was just, it was a whole different world. And once I discovered them, I was like, yes, like this is what I want. This is what I want to know. (laughs) Um, not just your textbook, like let's go read chapter four in your neuroscience textbook and then sit through a lecture on it. Um, so, such a difference. So, so when you when you realize that there was a way of testing and seeing progress and measuring it, your your eyes lit up. Is that correct to assume? <laughs> yes, that opened a, an entirely new world for me. And I th- I think what was helpful too was that in what I really liked about the doctorate program I went through is that they had chiropractors that were coming in and teaching us orthopedic examinations. And they had, they already had this, you know, this, this model for saying as Chinese medicine practitioners specializing in pain, you know, if we're going to be treating people with knee, knee pain and shoulder pain and back pain, we ought to know how to do orthopedic tests on those patients. We need to know how to assess the shoulder. We need to know how to assess the knee. We need to know how to assess the back. And and so they were already thinking in those terms. And then when I realized, well, wait a minute, like none of these schools in in Chinese medicine are teaching neurological exams. Like, Like I was never taught anything beyond take the person's blood pressure and you know, here are some, you know, red flags for if they have a tumor in their brain, which like you might likely never encounter in your, in your career, um, except for when I did, but that's another story. Um, so I started to realize that in our profession, there was a huge, uh, gap in our training. There was a huge gap in, in everybody's training, uh, unless there are schools now. And I think there are a couple, I mean, I'm on the faculty now of the school in Austin where I teach neurological exams as part of the curriculum. 
Um, but I don't, I don't know how many schools are actually doing that. And I think that once I started to realize that we're all treating neurological disorders, um, you know, somebody with depression, depression is, is neurological. Anxiety is neurological. Nerve pain is neurological. Insomnia is neurological. Nausea is neurological. Dizziness is neurological. And so I think that we also don't realize sometimes that we are treating neurological disorders every day. And so if we don't know how to examine the nervous system, we're missing a lot. We're missing a lot of what's actually really going on for these people. Right. Right. So there's a clear problem that as a profession we're missing. And you saw this as like an opportunity. Hey, we need to do this. We need to rise up. We need to evolve. We need to become better in these areas because we can serve our communities better is that a, a good summary, would you say? It, it is. And it's also, you know, there's a passion behind it because I realized that once I started doing neurological exams, it was a day, I have, was having daily aha moments of, oh, now I see what's really going on with this patient. Whereas before it would have just been kind of a mystery to me. Mm-hmm. And, and so I started to realize that doing those neurological exams made me understand Chinese medicine better. It made me understand our own textbooks better. It made me a much better practitioner and it made me able to connect the dots for a lot of patients when nobody else had been able to connect the dots. And so I was able to now start seeing some extremely complicated cases and work my way through it and be able to help those people when um, they were getting pretty hopeless and, and, so I, once I started to just really see how valuable the information was that I had been taught, I, I really felt strongly about sharing it with our entire profession uh, because we all, I mean, our profession is kind of having an identity crisis. I mean, there's a lot of other professions out there that are, are co-opting our techniques, they're co-opting our knowledge, and we're all kind of sitting here really frustrated about it. And I want to present the solution, which is we need to be able to speak about what we're doing from a biomedical perspective and from a very scientific perspective so that we earn the respect of everybody else and they don't see us as like some kind of fringe medicine because there's all kinds of other electro, you know, neuromodulatory electro devices that are coming onto the market now so more than ever. And they're all piggybacking on our science. That's right. That's right. So with you, the, it's so clear that, that this the clarity became that you need to get this information out to people that can help others at a greater scale, right? Was there a point where you just said, well, I need to teach. It's clear this, there's a huge deficit here. I need to get this information out. Was there an aha moment around that? I start, I'm kind of thinking back to when I taught my first class. I, um, when I was wrapping up my doctorate program, they did actually invite me to come back down and give a lecture on concussions. And so I remember spending a lot of time putting the information together and sharing it. 
And I had this experience where I'm standing in front of the room and I'm lecturing on concussions and I've put all this time and energy into my PowerPoint and I'm super stoked. And everybody in the room is sitting there with their laptop open. And I swear to God, they are probably like all on Amazon buying shoes. Like no, nobody (laughs) was listening. Nobody seemed interested. Nobody was like making eye contact with me. People were literally just sitting there like typing on their laptops. (laughs) And, um, I didn't, I didn't let it stop me. You know, I, I, I just simply had to say, okay, how do I go back to the drawing board and maybe make this a little more interesting? (laughs) So from there, how long did it take you to make it interesting? Sorry. (laughs) I I don't know. Um, like the elephant in the room. I'm sorry. I just <laughs> ask. <laughs> uh, well, you heard me talk in Boston. So that was. In it, was it was engaging. It was definitely it engaging. Was engaging. <laughs> um, no, I. Okay. So I love the Joe Rogan podcast. And one of the things that really stood out to me is that Joe Rogan often has other comedians on his podcast. And they often talk about their process. They talk about their process of coming up with jokes, their process of getting up on stage and figuring out, okay, how, how can I do it better, right? How can I do it better? How can I deliver that joke better? And, and I, I've had to go through a very similar process in speaking where at first you're super nervous. You're nervous about standing in front of people. You're nervous about... Um, someone asking you a question and you don't know the answer, you're nervous about forgetting what you were going to say or trying to explain something and doing it really poorly. And there's so much that goes on in the process of becoming a teacher. And I had never, well, I, I guess I, I taught like some martial arts classes, you know, I, I taught kickboxing, but that's totally different. <laughs> that's, that's not hard. Um, at least I didn't think it was, but teaching neuroscience is not easy. <laughs> That's a lot harder than teaching right, somebody exactly. how to pu- how to punch a bag and uh you know uh, changing someone's body mechanics and their form. So so I had to learn how to become a teacher. Uh, and that was certainly a process and I had my own process for it and I would lecture to myself, you know, in an at home in my in my house, I would I would pull up my my PowerPoint and I would talk through it. And whenever I got to a point where I got stuck, I would spend time on that section. And I would go for for walks and I would record myself talking and I would listen to myself talk. And so there was a huge, probably good two three years of of really putting a lot of time and energy into figuring out how to be a better teacher. <laughs> Um, yeah, right. I agree. And it's a, it's, I mean, it's a learning process and it's a process of getting over stage fright, getting over interacting with a large audience or even a small audience. And, and even when I started teaching at the school, um, I would start doing clinical theaters where we'd have a patient with a concussion come in and I would do my examination and explain why I was doing my exam and seeing what I was seeing and then doing the treatment and then doing the, the post-treatment exam. And again, like if you've never treated a patient in front of a room of, of, you know, 30 people, like that is its own daunting experience. Without a doubt. (laughs) And yeah. So, I mean, so on top of 
you know, learning how to be a clinician and then learning neuroscience and learning how to combine neuroscience with Chinese medicine and then learning how to be a teacher and learning, you know, I was always really clear about what is it that I do feel comfortable teaching and what don't I feel comfortable teaching and where do I need to do my own education so that I can feel comfortable teaching that topic or, or do I leave it to somebody else? And so, I mean, yeah, it's just been a definitely a process. So, you know, I give you a lot of credit for moving into the unknown and really kind of putting yourself out there. And this isn't, this is groundbreaking stuff as far as our profession is concerned. And to assimilate this information and then to put it in a way that can be understood by our profession, that is remarkable in itself. So for you, what's the next step? Where where are you going um, in in this this chapter book that you're creating now. Um, you've got a curriculum ahead of you. What, what is, what is your, your next step here? You know, I actually had decided to take 2020 um, off uh, or I would say take a sabbatical from treating patients at least for about six months out of the year so that I could focus on, on just teaching. Um, because I'm now, I'm on the Carrick Institute faculty and I teach neurological exam courses and kind of intro to neuroscience courses for acupuncturists through the Carrick Institute. Uh, I just came out or I just recorded a whole course on, on dizziness and vertigo um, with them. And then I'm on the faculty of AOMA and so I teach their neurology courses for their doctorate program. I'm on the faculty of ACTCM and I teach, uh, you know, some weekend neuroscience courses for them. And then I have my own uh, acupuncture neurology kind of teaching um, business where I'm developing all of my online courses on my website. And then I, I work with, you know, Dr. Clayton Shu. He and I have co-taught some courses and I've got some other courses that I'm going to be co-teaching with uh, some other people. And so I have so many different things in the works and I just wanted to be able to, to really dive in and focus on those things. And um, I was supposed to teach at the TCM Congress in Germany. It got canceled uh, that, yeah. the in person, but we're still doing it all virtually through zoom. Um, right. So at least I still get to, to be able to lecture, but I was so excited to go to Germany and to meet people from all over the world. And, you know, I was so excited to be at the TCM Congress. And so that was sad. Um, that was sad that that had to be canceled. And the Neuroscience Acupuncture Summit as well. I was like so excited about that. It was ha going to happen on my birthday and, you know, uh, having Dr. Carrick as the keynote speaker. And I just, um, Obviously, that got postponed until January. So I've had to obviously adapt like everybody else. And uh, so what I've been doing is, is really focusing on my online courses. And uh, like I, I just released one on migraines. And I just, film, I just recorded a whole 90-minute course on the neurophysiology of pericardium 6. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, 90 minutes of how pericardium 6... Uh, does all kinds of cool thing in the cool things in the brain. That's amazing. Now, one question that that I had for you when I heard all this is: Do you not have any fear at all? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
I would be shaking in my boots being like, oh my gosh, this is coming up next. And usually the person that holds me back is me. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you have thrown me around quite a bit in your younger days. So you're just charging ahead. Is there anything that holds you back emotionally? Mentally, physically. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I there there are a lot of obviously motivational speakers out there and people that 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 talk and lecture and I I do spend a lot of time reflecting on on myself and where where are my weak points and and I mm -hmm. do have a lot of um, moments where I doubt myself. I have a lot of moments of doubt. I'm also probably my, my meanest critic. Um, so mm. not only am I my meanest boss, I'm also my meanest critic. So that, that, that's, that's really <laughs> difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not very nice to myself. <laughs> okay. That, well, let me pause right here. Okay. <laughs> Do you have, so for me, um, I've been very mean to myself over the years. I've been the harshest critic as well. So I've had to do self-therapy for myself, you know, where I do affirmations. I do my morning practices to get myself out of the way. I mean, this podcast would have really been impossible for me five years ago. Uh, so I ask a question for you. Do you have when you're going to be embarking on these things, these are daunting for anybody, not to mention you having like five or 10 different things that you've got on your plate there. What do you do for your rituals, your routines to get you into the right headspace so that you can take on the world or your mind? I also have, um, I have a gratitude journal. So I, I do spend time, being really clear and focused on, on what am I grateful for and, and making the entries in that journal very specific. So not just like, Oh, I'm grateful for my parents, you know, like, um, but actually being like really specific about what is it that I'm thankful for. And so I have a gratitude journal. I also uh, do, I do EMDR and I thought EMDR was only something that was useful for like trauma and, and PTSD. But the, the EMDR practitioner that I work with is uh, he's opened my eyes to the fact that EMDR is like so much more than that. And uh, so he's working with me on a lot of what I would call kind of my, my self limiting beliefs or my self doubt. And we're really diving into why, why is my internal dialogue the way it is? Like, why have I programmed myself to think the way I do and identifying areas where it's maybe not healthy and going all the way back to like, where did that come? Like where in my childhood, you know, did I decide that this was the way things were and um, really working on that. So the EMDR has been very helpful. I, I recognize certain things that are more lifestyle choices, but that make a difference in the long run, such as doing my hot yoga three times a week, you know, going for long hikes in the woods, uh, you know, kayaking. So there's certain things that I do because I know that if I don't do those things, it means that I'm going to be in front of a computer 12 hours a day. <laughs> and um, so because I'm not very good at stopping work, I've become very diligent about 
scheduling in time where I'm away from my computer, away from my phone, and and really just unplugging. I love to sleep, so I do make sure that I get plenty of sleep. Uh, so that's not the issue. But yeah, th- there's definitely um, intentions that I set every day for here's what I know has to happen today. Here's what I want to get done. Here's the project I'm going to work on. When I have so many different projects and things scheduled, I, I have to plan like which day am I going to work on which project and what takes precedence and what is the priority. And when I get overwhelmed, I do something where I pick one thing that is the most imminent, you know, project that I have to show up and deliver. And I pretend like the other ones don't exist at all whatsoever. I put everything out of my mind and I just focus on that one thing. And that's how I've found I can not be overwhelmed is I have to trick myself into thinking that all those other things don't exist. Right. Awesome. Wow. That's great. I'm writing down a lot of notes over here. (laughs) So uh, we're getting close to the end of the, the interview here. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners as far as somebody that might be thinking about specialty, uh, a specialty or thinking about neurology in particular that you want to kind of impart some words to um, anything there that, that you would want to talk about? I think going back to what I mentioned before, which is that, so many of the patients that we as you know even general practitioners of chinese medicine work with every day uh, those patients are coming in with neurological issues and a lot of people have kind of pigeonholed me into oh well she just does concussions uh, or she just teaches about concussions there's a reason why i like teaching about concussions and brain injuries and it's because in order to work with those patients you have to be able to understand cognitive functions, vestibular functions, autonomic functions, uh, balance and you know, coordination functions, motor tracks, uh, spatial awareness and parietal lobe functions and how the sensory cortex work and sensory processing. And so it, concussions just simply provide a platform for being able to teach information that's applicable to all kinds of other disorders. It's just that with concussions, you've got to be able to integrate it all together. And so I like working with those patients because it's a population of people that really need a functional dynamic approach to rehab, but I like teaching it because it's simply a great way of highlighting the applications of neuroscience and the crossroads of neuroscience and and acupuncture. So that's why I'm trying to really say to people, Hey, it, 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 this, this information is not just for people with concussions. It's for every single patient coming in your office who has an autonomic nervous system. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't care what kind of style of acupuncture people practice. I, I, what I, what I like about what I teach is that you can plug it into anybody's practice because I'm not necessarily telling people here are the points you have to do. Here's the type of needling you have to do. Um, I'm simply saying, here's the neuroanatomy. Here's the neurophysiology. Here's the, the pathophysiology. 
here's what we know about these acupuncture points and what they're doing in the in the brain you know here are the neurological exams and then it gives people the ability to take all the information and make it their own and apply it in the way that it fits with their practice. So um, that's, you know, I think what, what hopefully I, I can convey to people is um, these neurological exams that I teach uh, can fit into any style of treatment uh, and become extremely valuable for difficult cases and for, um, having those aha moments of, okay, like I, I now understand what's going on for this person when before it was kind of a confusing mystery. <laughs> um, at least Great. that's been my experience in terms of incorporating exams into my practice. Great. Great. Thank you for that. Um, so for our listeners, how can they find you? What is the, I know there's videos of you on the Acuvids, uh website. Um, how else can they, they find you? They can find me. Probably the best way is uh, through either the AccuVids website and then my own website, which is acupuncture And the way that I keep in touch with people is through my, my mailing list. So if you go to my website and subscribe to my mailing list, um, that's where I send out, you know, upcoming classes or uh, podcasts or articles or events and all the stuff that I'm doing. And then I also have um, some of these online courses on that website as well. Great. Perfect. Uh, there is so much information on this podcast here. I'm sure people are going to want to listen to this a few times over. But uh, again, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, you're just a treasure in our medicine and a wealth of knowledge. And I really appreciate what you're doing. And I think more of us uh, need to get involved and really learn how we can help our community more. And uh, you're a great resource for that. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I will say one of the unexpected surprises of becoming a teacher is that I've gotten to meet so many acupuncturists and, and Chinese medicine practitioners. And I, I feel like I now have so many amazing friends that I didn't have before um, because I've gotten to, to travel and to meet with and collaborate with, with so many people like yourself. So that's been a huge blessing to me. And I, I, I really value uh, our community. I think it's, it's a really amazing community of people and I'm happy to do what I can to, to help. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you like the podcast, consider joining our Facebook group. Just search for Clear Path to Success Professional Development. Thank you all again.